millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. This podcast is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's Wednesday the 28th of February 1934 and thousands of excited people are crowding into Sydney Town Hall to see the scientific marvels of the future on display today at the annual Electrical and Radio Exhibition. Just 10 years ago, radio was barely a blip in Australia and just 1,000 people held licences that allowed them to tune in. Back then, these early adopters bought sealed wireless sets that were locked onto one station. In 1923-24, Sydney siders had just two choices, 2CM and 2SB. Melburnians would have 3AR and 3LO. Despite these limitations, radio soon boomed. And while the license system remained, the stupid sealed sets were done away with. People were free to turn the dial on new wireless radios they bought or made themselves. By the start of 1934, there were more than 500,000 radio licenses in Australia. More than 2 million people, one third of the population, were regularly listening and there were 50 plus ABC and commercial stations around the nation. As the Sydney Mail puts it on the day the Electrical and Radio Exhibition opens at Sydney Town Hall, quote, The rapid development of a worldwide character of wireless broadcasting is almost unparalleled by any other scientific discovery. While radio technology offers news updates, nice music, thrilling dramas and children's bedtime stories beamed into homes, it also offers so much more. In America, radio waves are being used to guide planes and ships. And banks are now using alarms connected to electric eyes to keep their cash safe. Television is just over the horizon. Today, at the Electrical and Radio Show, visitors can see manufacturers' displays of all the latest wireless sets. Beautifully finished in polished woods, they make stylish additions to the modern home. Some weigh as little as five pounds. Others can be installed in cars or even in planes. Big newspaper ads for the show spruik other wonders. One ad has an illustration of a massive robot, 
like something out of Amazing Stories magazine, holding the town hall aloft in its metal hand. The blurb reads, Talk to London Free. See the all-electric restaurant. See the unique lighting effects. See and hear a broadcast studio operating. Talk on the telephone of the future. See the wonders of the electric eye. See and operate 1934's labour-saving devices. See how your home should be lit. See your voice. These are a few of the 1,001 wonders of the electrical and radio exhibition. There are just so many gadgets that promise to revolutionise everything. From entertainment and education to transportation and telephony. So, when the doors to the town hall open, what's the most popular attraction? The one everyone wants to try out for themselves and pronto. It's not a device that will make them smarter, make them healthier, give them more leisure time, or give them instant access to the other side of the world. Instead, people rush a machine that can measure whether they have it. It. As in sex appeal. With the world's newest marvels right at their fingertips, Sydney ciders all but trample each other to test themselves on the true wonder of the modern age, the Pashometer. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. This episode came about after I stumbled upon an awesome headline in the 10th of January 1935 issue of Labor Daily. It reads, Girls on Pylon Sex Machine. Obviously, I had to know the story behind the headline, and that led me to the Pashometer. We'll get to the headline and the story that goes with it a little later in this episode. But I mention it now because I wouldn't have found it at all without Trove, the National Library of Australia's online database of historic newspapers. As you may have read or heard, this national treasure is under threat because federal government funding hasn't been confirmed past July. You can help save Trove by adding your name to the change.org petition for full funding. There's a link in your show notes. If you want to kick up your supporter notch and add a personal touch, then why not email Arts Minister Tony Burke directly with a letter saying how much you value Trove and how much you want it to be saved. Mr Burke's contact details are also in the show notes. Alternatively, you can email your local MP. Many thanks to Independent Federal Member for Mayo, Rebecca Sharkey, for raising this issue with Mr Burke in Parliament and also for being in touch with a ripper idea for a future episode. A big shout-out also to recent Patreon supporters, Jennifer Palomo, Kim Sims, Rosalie Jane, Hung Lu, Vivian Fleming, Richard Wardle, Pinky Agnew, Robert Mahoney, Matt Johnson, Rhonda Watson, Phil Asker, Anne Cooper and Dean McDonald. If you've become an Apple subscriber recently and you'd like a shout-out, my email address is in your show notes. Just regarding the last episodes, a big hey there to David Jackson, who got in touch to say that his mum Val, who's now 92, lived in Millers Point in Sydney in 1944, and she vividly recalls the crowd around the car in which gangster George Morris was assassinated, as we heard in Pearl Harbour and the Paycar Ambush. 
Meanwhile, listener Troy C got in touch to say he was amazed to hear the family history of the terrible Lionel Charles Thomas because the blokes related to him by blood. Troy wondered why his family never spoke about that side of the ancestral tree, and now he's got a better idea. Cheers also to Jonathan Tolksdorf, who listens to the show while jogging in Finland and who sent some beautiful photos of the snowy landscapes he calls home. The strange story of the Pashometer takes us back almost 100 years, yet parts of it still feel really relevant. In the past few months, there's been a lot of reports and speculation about something called ChatGPT. If you've not heard of it or tried it, it's an artificial intelligence chatbot that's constantly vacuuming up billions and billions of pieces of internet information so it can answer questions, write essays, compose poems, and so on. ChatGPT is, by any measure, pretty amazing. Of course, some people fear it's going to lead to a Terminator-style future for us. In the meantime, it's fun to play around with. Of course, yesterday, I had to ask it the biggest of big questions. How much sex appeal do I have? Here's what it told me. Quote, As an AI language model, I do not have the ability to assess your physical appearance or personal traits, so I am unable to provide you with an accurate assessment of your sex appeal. Chat GPT? More like cop-out GPT. But my little proto-Terminator friend was letting me down gently, its answer continuing, quote, However, it is important to remember that sex appeal is subjective and can vary greatly depending on individual preferences and cultural norms. Instead of focusing on your sex appeal, it may be more beneficial to focus on developing your self-confidence, positive self-image, and healthy relationships with others. Yeah, yeah, sure but it would be easier for me to develop my self-confidence and a positive self-image if you just tell me I was an 8. Even a 6. Back in 1934, the Pashometer didn't have any such qualms about putting a number on how much SA, short for sex appeal, people had. And overnight, it became a craze in Australia. Everyone wanted to know their score out of 100. Sound like a ludicrous use of a supposed new technology? I'm not rushing to judge. As has often been observed, in just one generation, the internet and smartphones have put all the world's knowledge right into our pockets. What do we use it for? The usual comedy answer is cat videos. But how do we share them? Social media. And what's the most influential social media platform? Facebook. How did Facebook start? as Face Mash. Evil overlord Mark Zuckerberg created it 20 years ago at Harvard University. Back then, student photos were uploaded to Face Mash so they could be placed side by side, allowing users to vote on who was hot and who was not. Facebook's origins were measuring sex appeal. Here's the Harvard Crimson newspaper in November 2003 describing what would soon become a worldwide phenomenon. Quote, after creating the website, Zuckerberg forwarded the link to a few friends for advice, but the link was then sent out on several campus group list servers, and traffic skyrocketed. In the course of one day, the number of visitors quadrupled. By 10pm, the site had been visited by 450 people, who voted at least 22,000 times. 
It was a digital stampede, just like the physical rushes for the Pashometer in Australia in 1934. Facemash and the Pashometer became popular because they served the same need. People wanted some sort of objective answer to that eternal question best put by the eminent 20th century philosopher Rod Stewart. Do you think I'm sexy? Do you think I'm sexy wasn't the wording used back in 1927. Instead, it was, do you think I have it? It was sex appeal. And it became a catchword thanks to British writer Eleanor Glynn. It's crazy to think that the creator of it, the creator of sex appeal, was born in 1864, a year before Lincoln was shot. From 1900 onwards, Eleanor Glynn was a prolific author of romantic fiction, and her stories and novels were hugely popular around the world. It was in her 1914 novel, The Man and the Moment, that she wrote about an undefinable attractiveness. Quote, With it, you win all men if you are a woman, and all women if you're a man. It can be a quality of mind, as well as a physical attraction. But It became a real Western obsession after Eleanor made It the title of her 1927 novel which described the quality as a quote, strange magnetism. Helping It along immeasurably was that that year It became a movie starring Clara Bow, who was the original It girl. Since then, stars such as Jean Harlow, Marilyn Monroe, Edie Sedgwick, Audrey Hepburn, Brooke Shields, Madonna and Chloe Savini have been dubbed Hollywood It Girls. We still use the term It Girl today. I asked ChatGPT who'd been given the label of late. It told me, quote, Some notable young women who have been frequently referred to as It Girls in recent years include models Kendall Jenner and Gigi Hadid actresses Zendaya and Lily Rose Depp, and socialites Paris Hilton and Kylie Jenner, to name a few. But the ever-diplomatic chatbot added, quote, However, the concept of the it girl is subjective and can be influenced by a variety of factors, including personal style, charisma, and media attention. So it is pretty hard to measure. That was true back in 1930. Let's hear from the source herself, Eleanor Glynn. I read in the paper the other day that it is really just the same thing as sex appeal. Now, is that really true? Well, you see, if that were really the case, every good-looking woman in the entire world would have it. Whereas I suppose, if one counted, there's about one in every 10,000. How does one tell this it in a person? Is it the way they talk or move or...? No, I should say to give it the most exact description, it is something which emanates from the eyes. Some curious magnetism, and it always comes with people who are perfectly, perfectly self-confident. You know, you cannot have it if you've got the slightest self-consciousness. Because then you know you're thinking of yourself, whereas the it people are absolutely indifferent to everything and everybody. Have you ever seen a tiger in the zoo? Oh, yes, rather. Well, now, look the next time you go and watch how it lies there, utterly indifferent. Doesn't care an atom who's passing, who's going to give it a biscuit or get away in fear. It just stays there lazily, looking oh, straight into the eyes of whoever is looking at it. Yes, That's why when all these people write to me and say, how can I acquire it? Well, I give them whatever rules I can think of by 
trying to tell them not to be self-conscious. But how in the world can they have it if they're trying to have it? It was conflated with sex appeal, and sex appeal was an exciting subject. For one, newspaper editors could put the word sex in a headline and get away with it. An illustrated feature in The Sun in Sydney in January 1930 was headlined, Is Sex Appeal an Aid to Success? This article was aimed squarely at women. It said that good looks, good fashion sense, good etiquette all added up as parts of it, and it could help a business girl. Hence the illustrations of a phone operator checking her makeup or a stylish woman sitting at her typewriter. The Pashometer appeared on the scene three months later, mid-April 1930. But despite the racy name, it really didn't have much to do with it or with sex appeal. The device's proper title was the Psychogalvanometer. This gizmo had been developed in the past few years in the Department of Psychology at Sydney University. The psychogalvanometer looked like a big radio set, except that, along with valves and resistors and switches and dials, it also had wires leading out to two handlebars. There were also sensors that were placed on your skin. When you gripped the handles, you completed a circuit, and when the psychogalvanometer was switched on, a very mild electrical current passed through your body. As you sat there buzzing, someone would read out words and skin sensors measured electrical fluctuations to see if there was some level of arousal. It was all very dry and scientific until, in April 1930, the Sun got hold of one to run its own experiments. This was when the newspaper dubbed it the Pashometer. Let's face it, psychogalvanometer is pretty hard to fit into a headline. Articles explained to readers that if you were hooked up to the Pashometer and someone said champagne or socialism, your facial expressions might not change and you might not twitch a muscle, but the Pashometer would not be fooled. Quote, if your hands are connected to this instrument, the telltale needle will flicker in response to your excitement. It cannot be deceived by lies. It cannot be bluffed. Over several weeks, the Sunday Sun tried to drum up excitement with photo features and articles. In one piece, prominent men put themselves to the test. The headmaster of Sydney Grammar's Needle didn't move much past a four when he heard words like bell and blunder. But it flickered to twelve when he heard the word cigarette because he hated them. Or so he said. Maybe it just reminded him how much he wanted to smoke. A prominent cinema exhibitor's fear of heights meant the Pashometer spiked when he heard the word precipice, while his worry about falling box office profits saw a similar rise when he heard the word tariffs. These tests were about as boring as they sounded. So the Sun spiced things up with another article that subjected young blokes to tests where a pretty girl entered the room in a normal longish skirt and then sauntered back in, in a shorter hemline, showing off a lot of leg and a saucy bit of slip. One bachelor, who'd said he had no time for girls, saw his true libidinous self revealed when his needle rose to 15, quote, where it stayed, quivering. The sun speculated the Pashometer's uses were obvious, particularly as a lie detector, like they had in America, that could test if suspected crooks were being straight with the cops during interviews. 
Thankfully, this didn't come to pass in Australia, and this version of the Pashometer faded from view pretty quickly. But The Sun and other newspapers did not lose interest in the It Factor and its kiss and cousin, Sex Appeal. There were plenty of newspaper articles and one of the leading commentators was George Bernard Shaw, who wrote a piece published in The Sun in June 1930 that was headlined, The Secret of Sex Appeal. The great man was of the belief that the 19th century woman, in her corset, high neckline, long sleeves and floor-length skirt was a, quote, masterpiece of sex appeal. Pygmalion's author had grumbled, quote, Women have taken a very large step towards nudity, and sex appeal has vanished. Bring back clothes, and the sex appeal will be increased. George Bernard Shaw was out of step with the times, but he wasn't on his own. Popular American agony aunt Dorothy Dix, whose column was syndicated in Australia and around the world, also bemoaned, quote, the present nudity in fashion in one of the many letters she'd answer about sex appeal. The subject of sex appeal was usually, but not always, about women. For instance, in 1931, The Sun ran a big feature that asked, who was the ideal man, or the it boy, of the screen? Candidates included Gary Cooper and John Gilbert. Given sex appeal was so hard to pin down, there were plenty of products offering to help you glow up. If every bit helped, why leave anything to chance? Don't be deceived. Yellow teeth are not natural, shouted ads for Colonos Dental Cream, promising to whiten your smile in three days. Lifeboy Health Soap ran ads featuring despondent women wondering why the boy they dated hadn't called. Was B.O. the reason? The ad asked before answering, B.O. soon kills romance. Rexona medicated soap could, quote, keep away disfiguring blemishes. Hennefoam shampoo could unleash the magic fascination to be found in your hair. Even good old-fashioned milk had a role to play. Australia's new screen star, Jocelyn Howarth, then featuring in The Squatter's Daughter, endorsed milk for health and beauty in ads promising that it would paint your cheeks from the inside. Having a pint of milk a day? Probably no harm there. But the same couldn't be said for the very popular Merkelized wax, which did remove blemishes with the toxic power of mercury. All of these examples come from newspapers found at Trove. But Trove can also show us year by year how many times the phrase sex appeal was used and thus give us an idea of how quickly it took off as an idea. From the available records, in 1926, the term sex appeal showed up just 46 times in articles and advertisements across all of Australia. In 1927, it was 202. And for the years after that, it hovered around 300. But in 1934, it jumped to 1,000. Much of this surge was thanks to articles and advertisements featuring the new Pashometer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The new Pashometer bore no relation to its predecessor except for the name. But boy, it was a hit this time. The Pashometer made its debut at the Electrical and Radio Exhibition at Sydney Town Hall on the 28th of February 1934. Visitors made a beeline for the machine, which had been installed by Phillips. The Pashometer was no longer like a radio set. It was a towering cabinet, ringed with lights and topped with signage that read, Do You Have It? and Believe It or Not. There was a large, colourful display with a needle that went from 0 to 100. An attendant controlled the pashometer with an electric switch. You, the aspiring sex god, stood on a platform while the attendant turned on the current. Two big lamps lit up your face and the pashometer's all-seeing eye, some sort of photoelectric cell, took you in using its invisible beam. What did it soak up? The sparkle in your eyes, the glow of your skin, your vibes, your magnetism, your very it. The pashometer's needle would flicker and start to move up and down until eventually it settled on your score. This was your scientifically determined percentage of sex appeal. Were you a 40 or a 50 like most folks? Or, heavens forbid, did you fail to get into double digits? Or did you soar into the high 80s or even the 90s? All around you, depending on the result, people gasped or giggled. But they also quickly elbowed you aside so they could get up and try it themselves. Every night at the electrical and radio show, there was a prize of one guinea, just over a pound, which was about two days wages for the person who got the highest reading. On Tuesday the 6th of March, the first 100 girls who tried the machine scored an average of 42.75. Then, up stepped Miss Phyllis Jarrett of Erskineville. She was 5'1", brown hair, brown eyes, nice smile, shy, a studious sort of girl. But like Cinderella, she was overnight the talk of Sydney, scientifically proven to be the it girl of the show, so far at least, with her score of 98. Who could possibly beat it? Well, Jocelyn Howarth, the movie star, who turned up the next day and scored 99, as if she needed more money and fame. But the crowd was delighted. They cheered and clapped, and someone cried, Atta girl, you're even better than Mae West. The Adelaide Advertiser reported that thousands of women, quote, with a bravery born of feminine curiosity, fought like tigers to get to the machine, many to find their most comforting conceit cruelly blasted. One such alluring young woman was expected by the crowd to score a hundred and walked away with just 28. Quote, It was all very sad. The young woman drifted away, sick at heart, and resolved, maybe, to remain a spinster all her days. The radio exhibition was a really big deal. It was covered in all the Sydney newspapers, all through the state and all around Australia. And just about every article led with the latest on the pashometer, rather than how this or that invention would change the way we lived. 
Crowds around the Pashometer grew so big that police had to be called. And it got worse with each passing day. On the 9th of March, the town hall's main doors had to be closed to keep hundreds of people out. The Labor Daily reported, quote, Scenes of wild enthusiasm prevailed round the sex appeal recording machine. Six policemen paraded the hallway outside. Finally, men were refused admittance. Sixteen women stepped on the machine every minute. That day, Miss Buddy Johnson of Zetland saw her needle flick to 100 before settling back to 98.4, giving her a score of 99 equal to movie star Jocelyn Howarth. The Australian Women's Weekly reporter was amused and appalled by these scenes in equal measure. Quote, the strangest procession the world has seen since the days of the Pied Piper trooped into Sydney Town Hall. Young girls, old girls, fat girls, lean girls, pretty girls, plain girls, and the men, grey old codgers, gay young friskers, and a vast crowd which could only be classed as miscellaneous, or, as my young friend put it, not so hot. The report continued. The piping which lured the motley throng was a pashometer, an electrical machine purporting to measure the charm of the subject for the opposite sex. I heard a girl elucidate it for the benefit of a boyfriend. It shows your sex appeal. Score 100 and you're a menace. Score 80 and you're no angel either. Score 50 and you'll probably be happy, though married. Score 1 and you might as well be dead. The Australian Women's Weekly writer continued, quote, Many, of course, regarded the whole thing as a huge joke, but many, especially of the younger clients, undoubtedly were impressed by the juju. With its quasi-scientific backing, this idiotic machine has probably done more emotional damage than a horde of the clairvoyance the law so rigorously prosecutes. Fortune tellers in their ilk at this time were risking arrest. But the law wasn't prosecuting in the case of the Pashometer. In fact, the cops were in on the fun. Police superintendent and notorious hardman Billy Mackay stepped up to give it a go, and he scored an impressive 55%. The four uniformed officers with him didn't even get into the double digits. 70,000 people attended the exhibition in the week and a half that it was open, and at least 10,000 measured their sex appeal. The Pashometer craze made news all over Australia, and they were soon popping up left, right and centre, from east coast to west coast. A Pashometer was shipped to Goulburn for a street carnival, with the Goulburn Evening Penny Post reporting, quote, Regarded as one of the scientific wonders of the age, this instrument has been secured at considerable expense, but it is felt that the outlay will be justified by the crowds who will want to see it. It is not a sideshow, but a genuine exhibit of one of the achievements of modern science. If you doubted that, well, you could come along and pay three pennies to try it out for yourself. On the other side of the country, Perth eagerly awaited the arrival of their Pashometer for their radio and electrical exhibition at Government House Ballroom on the 9th of April. The Perth Mirror's anticipatory article had an illustration of a big old bald bloke following a slender young flapper with the headline, Have you got it? Are you a red-hot mammy or an icicle? The article put it to readers, How's your sex appeal? Does it sweep girls off their feet like a runaway escalator, or does it send them panting for love into the arms of your grandfather? Men, this is a serious matter. 
Girls, is your sex appeal slipping? If your boyfriend can take you to the pictures and keep his mind on the movies, you're going off. When the big day arrived, the Daily News in Perth set out the official opening program for the exhibition. At 8pm, the Australian Governor-General, Sir Isaac Isaacs, would open the exhibition remotely by radio from Canberra, where he'd press a switch that would turn on the big light display in the Government House ballroom. At 8.15, Western Australia's Lieutenant Governor would make a speech. At 8.30, quote, The Pashometer will be available to patrons immediately after the conclusion of the opening speeches. That night, 3,000 people paid three pennies each to have a go. The Pashometer was a huge hit again. One subsequent newspaper article listed the display stands by number and name from 1 through to 21. But it added in bold, you can follow the crowd to the Pashometer. Brisbane saw similar scenes when the Pashometer debuted at Lamb's department store in Queen Street in late April. A week later, it was Melbourne's turn to be amazed by the Pashometer at the centenary radio show at their town hall. Yes, it'd be nice to hear Marchese Marconi speaking directly from Rome by radio, but how much more fun was it to subject yourself to the invisible ray of the all-seeing sex appeal machine? Pashometers went all over the country. Newcastle, Cairns, Wagga Wagga, Mawoolumbah, Rockhampton, and so have you. They graced fates and fairs, shops and sideshows, sometimes the proceeds benefiting charity, and other times going into the pockets of canny hucksters. But the best of these was the entrepreneur Archer Whitford. Archer Whitford is obscure now. Chat GPT doesn't know who he is because he has no Wikipedia page and no general internet presence. But you'll find him at Trove, and you'll also find his records at Ancestry.com.au, which tell us that he was born in Moonta, South Australia, in 1887. Archer's immigration records show he travelled to London and then to New York in 1924. When he returned to Sydney, he'd learned a lot about the entertainment business. By the early 1930s, he was living in Bellevue Hill and doing well as the editor of the film trade magazine Everyone's. Archer was also getting into commercial radio. But Archer had his eagle eye on a great entertainment opportunity, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. At the end of 1933, he negotiated for the sightseeing rights and he spent a small fortune to turn the southeastern pylon into an amusement centre. He installed a lift to a little place called Lover's Lane. He set up a restaurant, a tiny post office, put in a massive visitor's book everyone could pay to sign and added dioramas, mini museums, displays of Aboriginal artefacts and a big painted wall with a world map that was dotted with clocks showing the different time zones. Up on the roof, there was an array of telescopes giving views of a hundred miles. Archer's Entertainment Centre was an instant success. Archer employed 50 people. He was proud of this and posed for a photo in the Labour Daily. The caption read, quote, With a bevy of such beautiful girls, to say nothing of the courteous men, no wonder the southeastern pylon of the Harbour Bridge has become a popular attraction. Archer would soon boast he was taking in £70 a day. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $7,500. 
So what could make Archer even more money? Well, installing a pashometer and hiring a good-looking girl to be the attendant. This was Elsie Gamel, 28 years old, who lived in George Street. But Elsie wasn't to use her real name. Maybe Archer Whitford thought it was a bit boring, so he called her Honor Sterling. Talk about trustworthy. Honor Sterling. Archer even sent Elsie slash Honor out to Bathurst on a tour. There, she was described by the National Advocate as a, quote, charming blonde of unusual attractions. At the Sydney Harbour Bridge, Elsie slash Honor was a cashier, but she called herself the girl behind the pashometer. Officially, she was part of the bridge's birthday character analysis section. When people came into the pylon's maze of attractions, Elsie would call out to them with her spiel, quote, Would you care to go on the pashometer? You get on the pashometer and you get your birthday horoscope inclusive, all for three pence. Customers would fork over their money. Elsie would get them to stand in front of the pashometer. It'd do its thing, give them their score, and then she'd ask them their birthday. Elsie would pluck out a little card that corresponded with the date and hand it over. Inevitably, it'd contain another pleasing assessment of their personality and or physical appearance, either to buck them up after a disappointing pashometer score or to confirm that they were indeed hot stuff. In any case, off they'd go, smile on their dial, pep in their step. Elsie would have 200 to 250 customers during a weekend. On Friday the 22nd of June, the pylon hosted some pretty special VIPs from foreign lands. These dignitaries included the consuls for Belgium, the United States, Greece, Czechoslovakia, Finland, Holland and Switzerland. But it was Dr. W.P. Chen, consul for China, who scored the highest rating on the pashometer. He said it was due to the kindness of his heart. Now, the Sydney Morning Herald didn't report whether another visitor, Dr. Asmus, consul for Germany and an avowed Nazi, had a turn on the pashometer or what he scored. By September 1934, Archer Whitford reckoned 320,000 people had visited his attraction. He said he had £100,000 in assets. But Archer kept a close eye on his money. He appealed his income tax in court, and he was also taken to court by one labourer for alleged underpayment of wages. Archer's alleged meanness with money also apparently extended to Elsie Gamel, a.k.a. Honor Sterling. She reckoned she wasn't getting paid what she was owed. As we've heard, Elsie was selling items, that is, horoscope cards. So didn't that make her a shop assistant? Then why wasn't she being paid according to the Metropolitan Shop Assistance Award? And how about that overtime she'd done? Not only had Elsie gone to Bathurst with her birthday analysis routine, she'd also attended Sydney dances at night doing the same thing. Elsie had quit over her alleged underpayment, and so had another girl employed by Archer Whitford. On the 9th of January 1935, Elsie and her comrade took Archer to the industrial court in Sydney. Elsie claimed she'd been underpaid a total of £55, 4 shillings and 5 pence. She reckoned she'd been shorted 10 shillings weekly on her regular wage and was owed for 41 and a half hours of overtime. Archer's defence was that he denied Elsie was a shop assistant. 
In court, Elsie and her representative, Mr. E.C. O'Day, exposed the secrets of the pashometer. Mr. O'Day said, quote, In operating the machine, she used her discretion. She worked from the back and let people think they were getting cards that revealed them as Sheik's extraordinary. Sheik's as in Rudolph Valentino. Elsie explained to the court how she called out for customers and how many she roped in each weekend. Quote, the patron gave me three pence and stood on the platform while they set the current in operation. A series of lights appeared in the machine and it purported to record a person's personality. On the machine, various figures were painted which purported to... Well, I don't know what they purported to be. After that, I asked the patron his birthday and handed him a horoscope card. The legal issue was whether she was doing the work of a shop assistant. Mr. O'Day submitted that she was. Quote, Here you have goods offered and exposed for sale to the public. After all, buying a birthday horoscope is the same as buying a pound of steak or a packet of tea. The magistrate heard from Archer Whitford. Unfortunately, what he told the court wasn't recorded. But it was enough for the magistrate to rule against Elsie. Yet the other employee's claim was settled. The legacy of this most curious legal debate was the Labour Daily headline on the 10th of January 1935, Girls on Pylon Sex Machine. Truth, trumped for once, jumped on board next with the substandard Pylon on the Agony. You might have thought that after the expose of its science, the Pashometer would be no more. But it did return to the radio exhibition in Sydney a couple of months later. However, the gizmo was now old news, because it had been superseded by the psychometer, which gave psychoanalysis by electricity to tell you who you were. The psychometer registered you from zero to heatwave. Fingers crossed you didn't get one of the dud readings like emotionless, cold and tranquil, or passionate, almost uncontrollable. But if you were flawed in such ways, you might still redeem yourself by the way you looked with advice from the Fashionometer, 1935's other gizmo which could tell you which colour you should be wearing. Both of these gadgets did the circuit that year, but neither of them packed the sex appeal of the Pashometer. Soon, more serious times would accelerate new technologies like radar, computers and from Dr. Asmus's old mob, V2 rockets. But during the war, coin-operated variations that combined the original 1930 Pashometer and its 1934 sequel were still found here and there in amusement arcades. For instance, on Saturday the 18th of August 1945, just the week following the latest scientific marvel had destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Newcastle Morning Herald ran a little piece about a young bloke who'd used a pashometer to test his romantic rating in a local arcade. This fella stood in front of a machine that was supposedly able to tell him whether he was intoxicating, dynamic, or destined to be platonic. He slipped in his coin, gripped the handle, and the pashometer didn't work. But he was determined, so he stepped to the next one along, and he tried again. As the paper reported, quote, the machine whirred vigorously and registered sexless. The young man gave up and went home. Pashometers lived on under the name Love Testers. 
you'd still find them in pinball parlours and amusement arcades in the 1970s and 1980s. They weren't as exciting as Pac-Man or Galaga and were usually tucked away where necking teenagers might giggle as they paid to measure their sex appeal. Love testers of this sort had actually been popular in the United States since the 1920s. Like the original Pashometer in Australia, they supposedly worked on skin conductance, but in reality, most, like the 1934 Pashometer, just gave random results accompanied by a lot of flashing lights and funny categories to rate your love powers. These days, love tester machines are vintage items that sell for thousands of dollars. But the love children of the love testers, they're around us all the time. They're nearly as ubiquitous as Facebook, and they also changed our world and our attitudes to computers and information technology. In the 1960s, a Japanese company that for a long time had been successful making playing cards found that it was failing. So it hired a new man, an electronics whiz named Gunpei Yokoi, in the hope he could help turn its fortunes around. Gunpei was put in charge of the games department, and over the next few years he made some clever toys, but his big success came in 1969 with a handheld love tester. Two people could hold on to it and get a love score between 1 and 100. This was the first time the company had used real electronic parts in one of its products, and it was also one of the first products that it ever sold outside of Japan. The company? Nintendo. Gunpei would go on to create both the Game & Watch handheld units we loved in the 1980s and the original Game Boy that came at the end of the decade. In October 1985, the Nintendo Entertainment System, which used the Game & Watch controller design, saved and revolutionised the home video game market. So the humble love tester, a pseudo-scientific game still trying to answer the age-old question, do you think I'm sexy, played a key role in our love of video games and computer technology, setting the stage for the world of social media, Facebook, and chat GPT. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. You can help me make Forgotten Australia by becoming an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter for the price of a cup of coffee a month and you'll get early ad-free episodes and bonus shows. If you use Apple, you can try before you buy with a three-day free trial. Links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the show. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.